Let's pray. Lord, first this morning, y'all turn me back some, I'm too loud. First this morning, Lord, we want to uh, lift up a brother in another church. And uh, I want to pray for Greg Fields and Tracy. So thankful for the ministry that Greg is to me as a friend and a brother and a fellow pastor in this community. And I'm so thankful for the truth that we enjoy together and the many hours spent uh, with our Bibles open and um, talking and connecting dots and just thankful for the ministry that Greg is to me that has connected to this body in ways that nobody will see this side of glory. Um, where his enjoyment of you has blessed this body even. Lord, I'm thankful for uh, their marriage. I'm thankful for uh, the great picture of the gospel that they are to their kids and to those who walk with them, to their church. Lord, this morning I want to pray for Greg's worship first, just for his time of worship as he prepares sermons each week. I pray that he is overwhelmed with the gospel, and I pray that it shows up as he stands and delivers each week, that you speak through him to your people that you arrest that church with the greatness of the good news and the finished work, the nature of it, what it means to walk in a finished work. Lord, I pray that you will grow that people too. It's a burden on my heart and a burden on Greg's that you will grow that church uh, numerically as well as spiritually uh, for your glory, for your namesake, not for uh, any other reason than because it's served up each week. Just a burden, considering how many people are sitting at home on Sundays, or how many people are sitting under teaching that is uh, maybe chipper or light, um, sitting under teaching that may not be nourishing. The burden that I have personally for people to sit and engage a well-exposed, life-altering word. Lord, I pray that not only for Greg, but pray that for us this morning. I pray that you will uh, speak through us or through me and that we will hear uh, what the Holy Spirit has for us this morning, that we will be a people that are attentive, that we're not here for a talky-talk and not here for a chipper, um, sentimental um, Mother's Day message necessarily, but we're here to hear the truth about the good news. And that it makes great mothers of all the mothers and great fathers and great brothers and sisters and kids and people of God that we're all shaped through this. Lord, we love you. Uh, we look forward to the time that we have together in the Word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want you all to know I'm not against Mother's Day messages. I, I've preached them before. But that wasn't an anti-Mother's Day prayer. Um, but it's, I guess... Asking that the Lord would just not have us in a place where we're needing that this morning. Where we're okay with engaging the word for its sake. We do love our mothers and are thankful that you are mothers, that you are here. Um, but um, it's not about y'all this morning. We're in John chapter 20. Go ahead and turn there. <clears throat> we have a, I, what I feel like is a sweet journey in store. Considering what is, this is kind of funny when I was thinking about this, cracking me up. That this is really an Easter Sunday message. Preached two weeks after Easter. And I was thinking too that last week, considering Timothy's journey with Lois and Eunice, is sort of a Mother's Day message. So if you want to have things on the certain days, you can go ahead and you can get a copy of the CD and you can just put them in your player later on today and you can kind of line things up and reconcile all that. But this is just the way the Lord has ordained it for us, is that uh, this morning we're going to engage what in some ways would be a proper Easter Sunday message. And I'll tell you too, it's not going to be the kind of sermon that you're walking away with five or six things to go do. Uh, there are those sermons that are very practical, that have things that you can go walk in. This is more of an enjoyment sermon. It's exposing truth of the gospel and the people of God appropriately should just enjoy that truth. Ironically, it's the enjoyment sermons that are properly enjoyed that change you even more than the go-do sermons, in my experience. 
When people just say, okay, I'm going to put all this pragmatism aside and all this thing, okay, just tell me what to do, and just say, okay, I'm going to sit and enjoy a good God and a great gospel, you walk away and you walk in change. And you can't even measure it. It's cool. It gives God all the glory. That's the beauty of it. So preparing you for an enjoyment sermon this morning. We left off a couple of weeks ago with Christ still in the tomb. Uh, he's freshly buried. That's where we left on, on Easter morning, as, I, as, I, as you're seeing. All things were all kind of out of order. The disciples and the other committed followers went home likely, I would expect, in a state of shock and disbelief. Trying to figure out how in the world things had gone so south so quickly. I'm imagining, too, that they were thinking, it's just a week ago that people were singing and shouting as Jesus enters Jerusalem, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, throwing palm fronds, thinking about how things went so south, so fast. They spent all of Friday night and then all day Saturday, we can imagine, in a state of shock and disbelief. I imagine, too, that they wondered, what are we going to do now? We've been following Jesus for three years, especially the disciples. We've been following him for three years. What now? What's the next step? Where do we go from here? With the Sabbath behind them at this point, I'm thinking that some of those questions were really pretty infant, small, what do we do now sort of questions that probably come Sunday morning that they were still overwhelmed with disbelief and shock. We know where we're going this morning that at least Mary Magdalene was likely unable to sleep because she's up in the wee hours before the sun comes up to go mourn on location at the tomb. That's where we're going to pick up this morning in chapter 20 of John on a dewy Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. We're going to experience the resurrection through a woman named Mary Magdalene. And today, too, we're going to consider the consequences had Mary shown up and Jesus still been in there. Okay? That's where we're going. John chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. The Mark account of this resurrection account tells us that Mary Magdalene came with some other ladies, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, that they had plans to treat his body with spices. I guess it's maybe in some ways to prolong what would happen to the body or postpone and maybe some ways to mourn. And it's interesting too that they wondered on the way to the tomb who would move the big old rock that had been rolled in front of the tomb for it was too heavy. The Mark account tells us. I thought just as a side note, that's a great image of the gospel in and of itself, a work too great for us that someone else needs to do. So, Mary shows up finding the stone moved and the tomb vacant. And she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, likely John. We believe that's John. And said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I thought that was a nice touch by John. I mean, he's writing the gospel. He can call out the details that he wants to emphasize. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. And we don't know at this point if John believed that Christ was gone. Yeah, he's not in there. Or if he believed that he was risen. It's just sort of open. He just saw and believed. 
But then it tells us, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. In my notes, after the word homes, I have dot, 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 dot. Because it helps me imagine and visualize what these guys probably did. They're probably so confused and so discombobulated at this point. In order to fulfill the scripture, Christ had risen, but they didn't understand. There's no doubt in my mind that they paid attention to the sermons, that they paid attention to his teachings. But apparently at this point, they didn't have eyes to see. They didn't have a heart to believe and expect that their Lord had triumphed over death. So they went back to their homes. Seems to me like they should have expected it. Only a few weeks earlier, possibly as short as a couple of weeks earlier, he had called a man from death to life, Lazarus, come forth. It seems like it should have made these guys a little bit more expectant. The fact that he called Lazarus four days dead and stinking to life. But they just went back home. Maybe they thought the Jewish leaders had removed the body. Maybe they thought the Romans had stolen the body. The thing for me that's missing in verse 10 is where's the joy? Brothers, where's the joy? They just went back to their homes. But Mary, in verse 11, stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. I love Mary Magdalene's devotion. It's really pretty touching and beautiful. She's at the cross when he's crucified. Other accounts tell us that she's there. Other accounts tell us, too, that she's at the burial. That she went from where the body was taken down and taken to the gravesite, and she's at the burial, sat, sat and watched the burial take place. And then here she is on Sunday morning at the tomb, and then here she is yet again back at the tomb after notifying Peter and John. And here she is weeping. She stood weeping. She wept as she stooped to look into the tomb. She's weeping as the angels ask her why she's weeping. And I'm just imagining as I'm hearing all these tears fall. that Man, she must have really been heartbroken. She saw the brutality of the cross. She saw this Lord, the Lord that she had followed for a period of time. She saw firsthand the solemn burial. And she came on a silent Sunday morning. And found her Lord that she believed to be dead, now gone. I'm just imagining all the, the, the conflicting thoughts here. Her Lord, who she believed to be Messiah, was killed in front of her eyes. Her Lord is dead and now gone in her mind. And I'm imagining the conflict of thought. He's my Lord, yet he's dead. I thought he was the Messiah, and now he's gone. I don't even know where you put these thoughts. We try to experience this morning through Mary Magdalene. I don't even know where you put, put these thoughts. But right here from this view 2,000 years later, through the lens of the Word, it is the picture in my mind of hopelessness. She comes to anoint a dead body with spices. I want you to remember this hopelessness because we're going to come back to it. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, we don't know if it's because of the dim light. We don't know if the sun had risen at this point or if it was still dark outside. We don't know if it's because of disbelief, like her mind just hadn't gone to the place that possibly my Lord has risen. We don't know if it's possibly faithlessness. I don't have the faith to even see my risen Lord. But Jesus said to her, he said, woman, why are you weeping? She's still weeping. 
Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her one word. He said her name. Mary. Just her name. Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. I've wondered what took place in verse 16 and between verse 16 and 17 because verse 17 she's saying hey don't cling he's saying don't cling to me for I've not yet ascended to the father. I wonder if she just leapt for him, dove for him. Whenever my wife is startled, she does what apparently all women do because my mom did this too that has shortened my life by years. She does this thing that is part of being a woman that I bet y'all know what I'm talking about, where you go, (gasps) man, I bet you know what I'm talking about. If you're driving and you hear your wife do that, you think, we're about to die. (laughs) She may have read something in a book and you slam it on the brakes. I just wonder if Mary had a, (gasps) Rabbanai. Imagining the shock. And Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And he had said these things to her. A few final thoughts, and then we're going to get into the message. This is not quite the content or the meat of the message yet. This is just unpacking the passage. I'm going to unpack this last little section with a few thoughts. First of all, I love that the first to mourn that day was the first to see the risen Lord. It reminds me of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount where Christ preaches, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. She was comforted straight away. Straight away. I love, too, that it's a woman witness. All four accounts say that Mary Magdalene was the first to witness the risen Lord. The irony is in that day, a written account showing a woman as a witness would bring discredit on the account. But here, 2,000 years later, we look at it and realize that it actually authenticates the account. If it was a contrived story, they certainly would have left out a woman witness. But they included that. In fact, in all four Gospels, point that out. I'm enjoying that it authenticates the story now. I'm enjoying, too, that Christ refers to those disciples who followed him. He tells Mary Magdalene, tells tells her, go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father. Just please, for a moment, consider and marvel at this. That God, the Son, would condescend to call them his brothers. To call these guys who had argued about who would sit on the right hand only hours before his brothers. To call a guy like Peter, who would promise unending devotion and only hours later deny him three times, to call him his brother is a marvel. To call men like Doubting Thomas, brother, is a marvel and a sweet encouragement to me. Reminds me of a passage that I'll read to you. I'll tell you where it is, but I'm already there, so I'm going to go ahead and read it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom by all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Marvel that God calls us his brothers. That's shocker in and of itself. Now, on to the message. 
We're going to look at this message through Mary. First of all, I'll go ahead and give you a bird's eye view. I'm going to tell you the passages we're going to so you can be ready. Uh, Isaiah chapter 43, I'll give you page numbers as we get closer to that. John chapter 10, that'll be easy to find. We're already in John. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Romans chapter 4. Here are the things I want to show you in the next few minutes. I want to show you that Mary's salvation isn't based on the quality of her faith. Bless you. That was profound. We had to bless you. Mary's salvation was not based, is not based on the quality of her faith. That's the first thing I want you to see. She's devoted, without a doubt. She's at the cross, she's at the burial, she's at the tomb on Sunday morning, and she's back at the tomb after notifying John and Peter. She is devoted, but the size or quality of her faith is questionable. And I'm not just picking on Mary, I'm talking about all the disciples. The size and quality of their faith is questionable because like I was talking about earlier, where's the joy? Where's the expectation? Where's that verse where it just says they went home, dot, 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 dot? Why not dancing? Why not saying, y'all, he did what he said he was going to do? Where is the expectation? Thankfully, our salvation isn't based on the quality of our faith. If it were, then the whole lot of them, Mary Magdalene included, wouldn't have made it, for none of them had faith he would do what he said he would do. It doesn't appear that any of them were expecting a vacant tomb on Sunday morning. John is the only one that seems to maybe have some inkling of getting it when he says he looked in the empty tomb and he believed. But like I said, we don't know if he just believed Mary. Yes, sure enough, he's not here. Or if he believed he's risen. It's amazing to me that the Jewish leaders seem to recall Christ's prediction of being risen on the third day more than his own followers. And in fact, they went to Pilate, the Matthew account tells us, they went to Pilate and asked that the tomb be guarded because Jesus promised that he would, something would happen on the third day. I don't think they're expecting him to be risen, but they're expecting something to happen on the third day. Meanwhile, the disciples and Mary Magdalene are saying, where is he? I can't figure out where he went. It's amazing to me that Jewish leaders recalled that more than his own followers. I'm thankful that our salvation isn't based on the quality of our faith. A couple weeks ago, Christy and I got to go to a uh, conference in uh, Chicago and I heard a sermon, a guy named Tim Keller. He's a pastor of a church in New York City and a writer and a really, a, a, really a sweet sermon, a sweet time sitting under his teaching. He was preaching from Exodus chapter 14 and looking at Christ in the crossing of the Red Sea or the story of the gospel in the crossing of the Red Sea by the nation of Israel. And he said that about the nation of Israel, he said that their deliverance across the Red Sea to dry ground, on dry ground, to dry ground, opposite slavery, was not based on the quality of their faith, just as ours isn't based on the quality of our faith. And that stuck with me. And I thought, Christy and I even talked about it. I was like, man, that's, I've never really considered that before. And here's the illustration that he used. He said, you know, we know the Bible tells us there were walls of water on either side as they crossed on dry ground. That there were probably some who were crossing the dry ground on, on the Red Sea, looking at the walls of water going, cool. This is cool. Look at this wall of water. Man, this is amazing. This is cool. God's awesome. And then there were likely others that are crossing going, we're going to die. 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 But yet they crossed. He said that. I thought, man, I don't know about that. I need to chew on that some more. But I'm seeing it right here. And I'm seeing a bunch of people that are going, we're going to die. We're going to die. Where is he? Where did our Lord go? It's an encouragement to me. To realize that Mary's salvation and the salvation of the disciples and our salvation is not based on the quality of our faith. That's encouraging. Secondly, he calls Mary by name. Turn to John chapter 19. 
<clears throat> this is a pretty funny little section for me. It was for me. We had a good laugh in the office the other day over this. Not this moment specific. Let me read this and I'll contextualize that. This would be weird to laugh about this. John chapter 19, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother, he's hanging on the cross. He sees his mother and the disciple whom he loved, John, standing nearby. And he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Now, that's not what I'm looking for. I want verse. Oh, yeah, I want the verse in front of it. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother. We know her name's Mary. And his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas. So there's Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's Mary, the wife of Clopas. And Mary Magdalene. And just a few chapters before, we learn about Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. And I'm thinking to myself, man, there are Marys everywhere. Uh, It reminded me of a show we used to watch when I was a kid at home. And I think it had Bob Newhart in it. And I don't remember the name of the show. This guy was, this is my brother Daryl and this is my other brother Daryl. I don't remember the name of the show, but y'all know what I'm talking about. They're older among you. It also made me think about George Foreman's kids. I mean, there's George Jr., George III, George IV, George V, George VI, and he has two daughters, Frida George and Georgetta. I'm thinking about all these Marys, and we got a good laugh out of that. I love, though, that it's a common name. It's almost like it's ambiguous. It's almost like John Q. Public. It's almost like John Doe. The thing that blesses me is it's, it's ordinary Marys that enjoy our extraordinary God. Now, let me tell you, we're going to come back to the name thing specifically. I want us to consider for a moment him calling her by name. But first, I want to tell you who this woman is. I'm going to read a little section for you. You don't need to turn there from Luke chapter 8. You can if you want, but you don't really need to. It's not really an essential passage. Luke chapter 8. Uh, there was a guy named Pope Gregory I that preached in 600 AD or something like that that Mary Magdalene was the sinful woman of Luke chapter 7. If you know your Gospels, you know the story in Luke chapter 7. That's the, the account where Jesus is eating a meal with Simon the Pharisee. And uh, this woman, a, a sinful woman it says, came and uh, anointed him with some sort of ointment from an alabaster vial. And, then, and that, that's the account where he says, he, she who's, he who's been forgiven much loves much, that woman. And then in chapter 8, it says, Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Now this guy, Pope Gregory I, preached in 600 AD that these were the same women, that that's one woman, that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. You may have heard that your whole life. You need to know there's no biblical evidence for that. Pope Gregory went freestyle on that one and just connected a dot that there's no way to connect. It makes a good story. But Mary Magdalene, from all we know about her is that she had seven demons. But you know, that's enough. I was t- telling the kids about, about that. Uh, we were talking last night at bedtime, and I was telling them about these Mary Magdalene having these seven demons and my kids had this response. They were like, well, what does that mean? I said, I know, right? It's just scary sounding. We don't know whether they were demons that were connected to infirmity, some sort of sickness, if she was riddled with sickness, or if she was riddled with vice. If Luke is using seven the way John uses seven, which means the picture of fullness, then we should say she's quite a mess. Seven demons is enough. She doesn't have to be a prostitute in my mind for it to be an awesome picture of a woman who's greatly delivered. For here she is following Christ having been delivered from seven demons. Demons that we don't know what they were. And here Christ is on the morning of his resurrection calling this woman first by name. Turn to Isaiah Isaiah chapter 43. I don't know if I gave you that reference. I hope I did. I did. I remember. It's on page 603 of your pew Bible. I want to show you that what Jesus did that morning is what God does. 
Jesus calling her by name, that's what God does. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1 says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, we could include, O Mary Magdalene, O Lazarus, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I read some of this advanced a good thing Jesus called Lazarus by name. Otherwise, that graveyard would have emptied. But that's the way he calls us, like he called Mary that morning. By name, Mary. He goes on to say, or this Isaiah passage says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Insert Mary, insert Lazarus, insert Jacob, insert Israel, insert your name in there if you're following him by faith. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Think baptism. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Think, this is cool. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Man, I love that he called her by name, because that's what God does. Turn to John chapter 10. As you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little context for one little short passage. This John chapter 10 is the passage where Jesus teaches on being the good shepherd. In verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And over in verse 2, he says, But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. That's to be contrasted with one who's a thief. He's speaking of the good shepherd. He says, to him the gatekeeper opens to the good shepherd and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Jesus did with Mary what God did with Israel and I enjoy what he did too with Lazarus. I enjoy that that's what he's done with us. He calls us by name. Third, Mary's most to be pitied if Christ had been in the tomb when she got there that morning. First thing I want you to consider is Mary's salvation isn't based on the quality of her faith. Secondly, he called her by name. And third is Mary's most to be pitied if Christ had been in the tomb on Sunday morning. I want us for the next few minutes to consider the consequences of an occupied tomb. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This, I'll tell you, in these next couple minutes is really the marrow of this message. And I think it will tell you more about the gospel than maybe you know. If you do know it, you'll just enjoy it. If you don't know it, connect to it and then enjoy it. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and apparently there's some sort of thought that's entered the the Corinthians church that there's no such thing as resurrection of the dead. That when you die, you're just like a bug squashed on the ground. There's no resurrection of the dead. And Paul is speaking to this in chapter 15, first of all, for context's sake, in verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. I'm reminding you of the content that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. This is how essential and important this message is. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here's the content. Here's that football I talked about a couple weeks ago. For I delivered to you a first importance that what uh, first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now look down to verse 12. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how in the world can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then this is the first thing we're going to talk about. Our preaching is in vain. And here's the second thing. Your faith is in vain. 
We are even found to be misrepresenting God. We're a bunch of liars if the tomb is still occupied because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, if Mary showed up there on Sunday morning and had a body to treat with spices, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And here's the worst thing. You're still in your sins. Then, all, then those also who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're like the bug we talked about. If in this life only we've hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, you know what? Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits on this Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Now, the first thing I want us to consider is that our preaching is in vain. If the tomb is occupied, man, don't bother coming on Sundays. If the tomb is occupied, I shouldn't even bother with gobs of time spent preparing to preach. It's all futile and vain. Don't listen to it. Don't bother exposing it because it's all vanity. It's a waste. It's unproductive. It's unnecessary if his tomb is occupied. Now I want to flip that around for you all to consider something for a moment. What does it mean when preaching is treated as vanity? What does it mean when the preaching of God's word is treated as empty, useless, and optional? It means that Christ's tomb might as well be occupied. For a believer to walk in life without the preached word is to live like Easter morning never happened. You need to realize that it's in the preaching of the word that we live in the power of that resurrection morning. It is how we walk in newness of life by the preaching of the word. That's why as long as the Lord gives me grace to do this, I'll stand and deliver. And if it's 10 of us, I'll stand and deliver because it's going to give life to somebody. It's how the people of God walk in newness of life because that tomb is indeed vacant. Considering the vacancy of the tomb, our preaching, in fact, is not in vain. As Peter says in 1 Peter, it is the imperishable seed that gives life. In fact, preaching, instead of being vain and just a talky talk and just Charlie Brown's teacher, wow, 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 droning on. Instead of all that, in fact, preaching is productive and fertile and life-giving. It's story-developing. It's mind-renewing. And all of that is because his tomb is vacant. So Mary Magdalene can engage the preached word. By all means, Mary, come and listen. Because the tomb is empty, it will be worthwhile. If that tomb is occupied, though, preaching is vain. If the tomb is occupied, faith is is vain. Verse 14 tells us. And verse 17 tells us faith is futile. Think about this for a moment. Vain and futile faith is to hope in something that's really no hope at all. Vain and futile faith would be to believe in and trust in a fairy tale. There are lots of places I would like to go right now for the sake of illustration, but I know there'd be some parents that are mad at me because I would expose some holiday figures. Vain and futile faith is to trust in something that really doesn't deliver. That's what it would be if Christ's tomb was still occupied. Here's an example of vain and futile faith. I just did a little search for futility. I'm trying to understand futility, and I found this example. It's not profound, but when we connect it to Mary, it'll be more helpful. It was a futile decision to invest in that company since they never made a dime. Now, let's put Mary in that. Mary, you wasted your time if Christ is in that tomb. Do something else this Sunday morning. 
Wash and condition your hair. Do some laundry. Wash the station wagon. Ironically, what she came to invest in would actually be no investment at all had it been realized. Treating a dead body with spices. Think about it. That is vain and empty faith. Christ not being in the tomb is what made the investment of a Sunday morning worthwhile. Do you see that? Christ not being in there is what made that investment worthwhile. His resurrection made it a morning well spent. His resurrection makes every morning in pursuit of Him well spent. Third, Mary, if he's still in that tomb, you're still in your sins. And this is probably the worst one. Turn to Romans chapter 4. I want you to see this. I really want you to see this. You can keep your finger over there in 1 Corinthians, so so, because we'll be coming back. Romans chapter 4. Mary, if you show up to treat his body with spices, got bad news for you, you're still in your sins. You may have been liberated from seven demons, and they may have really ravaged you. But I got bad news for you. You're still in your sins. If the tomb is still occupied, then Christ made a payment, but he didn't pay at all. He made a payment, but I guess it was just a deposit. Because he didn't pay at all. I'm going to read one verse here in Romans chapter 4. Paul has been talking about Abraham and his faith. And in verse 25, he says this. He's speaking of Christ who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, man, if there's anything I want you to get this morning, I want you to get this verse. He's delivered up for our trespasses. That should not be new to any of us. That's what happened at the cross. He bore our sins. He's delivered up for our trespasses. Everybody gets that. The next part is the marvel. And he's raised for our justification. Before preparing this week, I have to tell you, I've never really connected the resurrection to our justification. But here's the point. The proof that he paid for our sins completely is in the airy and empty space of that tomb. His resurrection is our justification. I was thinking about it like this. Probably a bad illustration, but it's one that I'll use anyway. Like a little kid going into a candy store. I mean, I'm thinking of myself when I might have four pennies and a nickel and I want to buy a 50-cent candy bar. You know, I'm, I'm pulling lint out. I'm pulling all kinds of stuff out of my pocket. I got four pennies and a nickel, nine cents for a 50-cent candy bar. It doesn't matter how cute a kid I was. I'm not leaving with that candy bar. I don't have full payment. I don't leave with the reward or the goods. What you need to realize is that God raising him from the dead was the stamp of approval that payment had been fully made. God raising him from the dead was the stamp of approval that he accepted it as full payment in blood and suffering. And here's the scandal of the gospel. For Mary's sake and for ours is that since we're united with Christ in death, we're united with him too in resurrection. And his approval becomes ours. Man, I want you to get that. Mary Magdalene was raised together with Christ that morning. She didn't know it. No way she could have known it that morning. In fact, she didn't even expect him to be up. She expected a dead man. But we too were raised on that morning. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, That he made us alive together with Christ and he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That Easter morning was our Easter morning as well for those who are united to Christ. It was our resurrection too because full payment was made. I was talking with Greg about this section of my, Greg Fields, about this section of my uh, sermon. And Greg, it's funny, he said a couple weeks ago he preached on the same passage, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25. And he, said, he, shared with, he shared something with me that I think is profound. 
He said to consider the crucifixion of the God-man. To consider the crucifixion of the man, God. Jesus. The man. Think about the man for a minute. The humanity of Jesus. Fully God, but yet fully man. Consider that at his resurrection, that what goes along with that is his ascension. Jesus talked about them together. Resurrection and ascension, they go together. They were separated by time, but in Jesus' mind, they go together. Resurrection and ascension, going to be at the right hand. So what I want you to see, what Greg took his people to that I think is important for us to see, is at the resurrection and ascension of Christ, I want us to see Christ the man strolling into the throne room and taking a seat at the right hand. This was the first time that a man had ever entered the throne room because man was fallen. And that's the good news of Easter morning is that Christ the man made the full payment that opened the throne room for us so that we can boldly enter in. He had the full 50 cents. He bought the candy bar for us. He made the payment in full. And that's why his, his resurrection is our justification we were dead, but he made us alive, and he raised us up, and he seated us with the victor in a place we previously had no access to. That's the good news of the gospel. He was raised for our justification, and we are not still in our sins. His righteousness and payment is counted as ours. Lastly, If Mary had found him in the tomb that morning dead, if she had treated him with spices, then when we die, we would in fact be no different than a bug. In fact, we would actually be worse because a bug, when he dies, I think he's just dead. Just. But in our case, that would be the beginning of eternal torment and punishment. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 18 says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He's speaking hypothetically if the tomb was still occupied. Then those who fell asleep in Christ fell asleep in a model, an amazing model of a generous selfless life and death, but a model only. They didn't fall asleep in means. They didn't fall asleep in mode for life. They just fell asleep in a model of a good man. Thinking about some of the Mocking that he took on the cross. Here's an example of it. Just listen to this from Mark chapter 15. See if I can find that. Listen to this passage. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself and come down from the cross. Sorry, dudes, it hadn't been three days yet. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe, they mocked. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Had he not helped himself out of a tomb on Sunday morning, although this would be mean, it would be true. He, in fact, would be mockable. And we would be most to be pitied for following a dead man. Do you understand that? That's why we would be a mockery. If we gave up all, surrendered all to follow a man who's occupying a tomb. Man, here's the irony. Her Lord would have helped her out of quite a jam. Seven jam worth of demons. Seven demons worth of jam. Quite a mess. But in the end, he would have been no help to her in her final and worst jam, death. You see that? Man. This morning, I want us to be really thankful with Mary Magdalene. 
And I want us to enjoy an empty tomb and a risen Lord. Let's pray together. God, I'm so thankful that that tomb is so vacant. That there's no Jesus in that tomb. That he is seated, seated squarely at your right hand. Lord, I'm so thankful that he gives us access to your throne room right now. That not only can we enter... Well, first of all, not only are we spared death and eternal torment in hell, but that we are seated with the victor in the throne room, enjoying the spoils of his victory. Lord, I pray this morning that looking at this through the lens and story of Mary Magdalene, that we can just enjoy you and enjoy this gospel. And I pray that by enjoyment that you change us to worship more consistently, to bring glory to you in how we parent, in how we are a husband or a wife, and how we work, and how we follow our parents. I pray this will invade every area of who we are. That by enjoyment, you will make us worshipers that bring glory to you. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We have the Lord's Supper now, and uh, something I want to share with you was really going to be part of this sermon. And I thought, you know, this would be an appropriate consideration for the Lord's Supper. It's a, it could be a sermon in and of itself, but it's, I think, just shy of that. A few months ago, we engaged something. It's an ancient word for the nature of God. And it's something that we found has application to us. It's the word called perichoresis. Some of you may remember the word. It's, it's, it's an ancient word that describes the dance of God. Father, Son, and Spirit. So intertwined, interpenetrating, interinvolved that it's often a blur, that it's just hard to make out. Okay, who's doing what here? Father, Son, or Spirit? And that as Christ prayed in the high priestly prayer, he prayed that as Father and Son are perichoretic, that his people would be perichoretic, that we would be blurry. That as Greenville, as our family members, or as we looked at the people of God, we would see a people that are interpenetrating, interinvolved, Interconnecting. So it's not some academic, ethereal notion. It's something that has real application to how we live and are involved in each other's lives. So every chance that I have to engage or enjoy perichoresis in the Trinity, I'm going to do that. So I want to show you perichoresis in the resurrection. John, you don't need to turn to these passages. You can write them down if you want to look at them later. John chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. See, right there, Jesus saying, I take my life up again. Now, Romans chapter 6 is the next one. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Okay, well, did Jesus raise himself or did the glory of the Father? Yes. It's getting blurry, isn't it? Here's the next one, Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So was it the spirit that raised him from the dead? Yes. So who was it? God raised Jesus from the dead. It's a beautiful dance of a God, Father, Son, and Spirit worth enjoying. The triune God raised the Son because full payment had been made. In these next couple minutes, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And I want to encourage you to take the Lord's Supper enjoying God. That's what we do or supposed to do with food. We do it every day. There should be reminders every day of enjoying not only the nourishment, but the provision and the fellowship. That's what the Lord's Supper is. Enjoying His provision of moving a rock we couldn't move. Of making a payment we couldn't make. Of overcoming an obstacle we couldn't make called death. It's an enjoyment meal 
enjoying his provision and enjoying the company of each other and the company and presence of our God. He shows up in this moment as we dine on him and enjoy him. So let's eat in enjoyment. Let me tell you too that this meal is for those who are enjoying and trusting him as their Lord. It's for those who've been called by name. If you don't have faith in Christ, if you're not united to him by faith, don't take this meal. It's not for you. It's for God's people. So let's take it together in faith. Let's enjoy God together. Take and eat. As these families are are coming up here, I'll introduce them in just a second. I want you to think for just a minute uh, briefly about your Old Testament. Um, Think about the journey of the people of God, that exodus. The wall of water that Ben was talking about earlier. All of the, the kings and the judges and even the poetry and the Psalms and how it talks about families. There were likely little ones and kiddos that saw that wall of water. They were on that journey with the people of God. They weren't set aside to say, you can't see this. You're not ready to see this or know this. Or They were brought in and they walked with the people of God in that. When the Psalms speak of how God will receive his glory, he'll receive it from families, the people's ascribing to him his glory and what he is due. And it's families that are spoken of. And so we on this side of the cross are saying to these families, your children are among us. We will not set them aside. We will walk with you in raising them in this faith and in this gospel. We will expect them to confess and profess and we will look forward to that day. And we will teach them alongside of you No matter what the circumstances are, what tomorrow brings, we're with you in this journey. We're walking with you in it. And we expect you to walk with us and our kids. And especially when we need a babysitter. We need. (laughs) Let me me introduce these families to you. um, And then um, we'll say one more thing about what you'll be presented. Uh, This is Kellen and Angie Carroll. Right here, this is Riley K. Carroll. You saw that on the screen. Well, hello. Did you recognize your name when I said your name? <laughs> and then her sisters are uh, Addie and Krista. And then Drew and Shauna Livingood over here with Isaiah Reese and uh, Sister Emery there. And um, uh, part of our commitment and covenant with you, an agreement of saying we're going to walk with you. We're going to be intentional in raising these children in the faith and uh, bringing them into this journey is um, some books, and there's a certificate in here. Um, the certificate is us declaring that these kids are among us, and um, nothing more than to say, commemorate this day as your intentionality and our intentionality to walk with you. So that's uh, yours. There's a letter in there to be opened when they do profess and confess Christ as their Savior. And so um, we want you to know that we are going to be with you in this. And church, you need to know that you're saying something today too, back to them. So if you would join me in prayer for these little ones, for the brothers and sisters, and for mom and dad. Father, it's our prayer that we would never uh, set our kids aside when you want them on this journey with us, that the covenants and the promises and the and the, the uh, amazement and the goodness and the blessings that we are enjoying, that we would bring them in. We would let them see it. They would hear it out of our mouth. They would see us living it. And they would worship with us. That's, that's our prayer. Is that Riley and Isaiah and um, Emery and Addie and Krista would, would worship with us and our kids. That they would be worshipers and that you would... Um, get that from them because we know that's what you're seeking that they, they worship you in spirit and in truth help us God we need you we cannot do this we need your spirit to reveal this to their hearts and ours and we are dependent upon you and it's in Christ's name that we pray amen families y'all can be seated Scott
weird having a small baby dedication. I think we had 37 on our last one. Um, I'm actually going to have all y'all stand back up in like two seconds, so be ready. Um, we're also going to, uh, I've got someone who's coming from membership this morning. Cameron, come on up. This is Cameron Pitts. Uh, I met with him a couple weeks ago. Um, we, uh, he grew up in the area, graduated from Roy City High School in 08, and he is in his third year of a six-year contract with the uh, Marine Corps Reserves. And um, I encourage y'all to get to know him. It is so, it's easy when a family comes up and you say, well, just have the family over. It's, it's an easier thing to do that, and it's a lot easier to overlook a guy standing here hungry. And so don't <laughs> let him go hungry. Feed him, have him over, cook for him, get to know him. On a personal note, I'm always incredibly encouraged when I see a guy in his young 20s who takes very seriously finding a church home and being like-minded with other believers. And as I talked to them, we met for a few hours at Chick-fil-A, and uh, it, I was very encouraged by his seriousness to find the right church home. So uh, you stay up here. All you guys who just sat down, come back up here. And y'all come greet everybody, see them uh, here at the end, and then, um, and then you'll be dismissed. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll go about that. Let's pray. Lord, we love you very much. Uh, we are very, very blessed. Um, there's much to celebrate. We celebrate an empty tomb. We celebrate uh, the work that you're doing in the church. We celebrate new life in the church. We celebrate uh, people who are joining and, um, and are like-minded. God, you are great. You are greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. I pray that as we leave here, we would leave in the manner that Ben explained at the beginning of his sermon, that we would be just changed because we're enjoying the truth of what really happened on the cross in a very empty tomb. I'm thankful that you are not mockable, that, that the tomb is very empty. I'm thankful for what it, the implications that it has on the preaching, the implications that it has on our faith. Lord, we love you very much. We pray that you would be with us as we go about our way today. We thank you for our mothers today. Pray that you would bless them as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.